Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful day that you've given us, such a beautiful day to be in your house worshiping with your people. Lord, now as we worship you by listening to your word, hearing your word, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word and be obedient to your word, Lord. Even though we're talking about the uh, a difficult topic this morning of church discipline, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to what your word tells us and commands of us as, as a church, as your church, and that we would be faithful to do the things that you call us to do when necessary. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart to hear. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, we'll be looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13 this morning. We looked at it that last week, and we're back in it this week, uh, taking out another perspective. We're talking about church discipline. Now, something that Brother Larry mentioned in his prayer a while ago, and he was praising God, thank you for uh, conforming us to the image of Christ. You know, that's a very wonderful blessing that we as Christians have, that, that we have this promise that God is working in us to change us, to transform us. Those who are in Christ Jesus are a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're a new creation, and God is working in us to change us to be like Christ. Well, one of the ways that God works in us is through the church, through church membership, being a part of the body and being accountable to the church. And that means that we give the church the right to speak into our lives, to tell us when we're going astray, to help us to turn away from sin, and turn to God, and to continue that walk with Him so that we can continue to grow to be like Christ. And so one of the ways that the church helps, uh, helps us, right, the one, one of the ways that we as a church help one another is through this uncomfortable topic of church discipline. Now, church discipline is not something that we see very much these days, especially in the American church. Uh, we talk about church discipline, well, that's a big no-no because, you know, we're all autonomous. You can't tell me how to live. You can't tell me what to do. That's kind of our attitude being Americans. But when you're in a church, when you join the membership of the church, you're giving permission to the church to speak into your life. You're, low, you're no longer saying, I'm autonomous. You're saying, I'm a part of the body of Christ. I'm accountable to my church. And so it's the church's responsibility, if you go astray, to conduct church discipline. Now, church dis discipline is it's difficult. It's hard. Like I've been saying, it's not something that's very comfortable. We don't like to do that because it's uncomfortable, right? There's tension involved. There's conflict that, that gets, gets raised when we begin to talk about church discipline. 
And we talked about that some last week as we looked at the motives of church discipline. We need to always remember that the motive of church discipline is love. It's an act of love. We love a person so much that we would rather speak into their life. We would rather uh, come into their lives and point out their, their problems, point out their sin, and discipline them rather than they go to hell thinking they're all right. But there's, it's also difficult, church discipline is also difficult when we think about how do we do it? How do we conduct church discipline? I mean, when you think about discipline in general, there's many ways that we can discipline our children. There's corporal punishment, right? We can spank them. Uh, sometimes, though, that corporal punishment is not the most ideal way to discipline even our children. Uh, one of my friends was... Uh, when he was growing up, he would beg his parents, please spank me, please whoop me, right? He would rather have the whooping because that's just a, a couple of seconds and it's over with. And, and then he goes on about his life. He's a big old boy, so uh, it didn't really hurt that bad. But, but he was like, yes, please whoop me. I want the whooping. I'll take the whooping. Uh, but then his parents figured out if they took away the truck keys, that's what got him. Oh, no, please, please don't take away the keys, right? It's the removal of privileges. Sometimes the removal of privileges works far better than corporal punishment. And when we talk about church discipline, uh, the way, the means of church discipline is always the removal of privileges, right? Even though uh, you look at church history and you see sometime in church history that the church conducted some forms of corporal punishment, but that's not what's prescribed in Scripture for the church, the New Testament church. What's prescribed for the New Testament church are the removal of privileges. So let me just kind of give you some review here. What we're talking about, church discipline, church discipline is the punitive action of the church toward a member who is living in open, unrepentant sin. And church discipline is conducted in order to get that person to repent from that sin and conform to the image and likeness of Christ. So we want all of our members to be growing in their relationship with Christ, growing in their resemblance of Christ. And so church discipline is a way to, to get that, to see that in the lives of each church member. Now, we need to understand that there are steps to church discipline, although that's not covered in Paul's letter here. He's not talking about the steps. But Jesus gives us the steps of church discipline in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. I'm just going to give summary form here so that you can understand that, that there are steps, there are stages to church discipline that must be taken uh, into account. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So step one. Step one of church discipline. You see a brother or sister in Christ. They're living in open, unrepentant sin. It's your responsibility as their brother and sister in Christ to lovingly go to that person and tell them, hey, look, you're, you're doing wrong. You're doing wrong. You're living against the word of God, and, and you, you need to correct that. You need to change that. You need to get on track. And so that's that one-on-one -on -one confrontation, step one. Step two then goes on in verse 16. But if he does not listen, 
take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So step two is then take two or three other folks with you. Now there's a small group, two or three people going and confronting the sinner. Look, your life is, is not in accordance with the Word of God. You're living in open rebellion against the Word of God, and, and you need to change that. You need to correct that. You need to repent and turn to Christ. So step two, co- confrontation between the sinner and two or three others. Step three, step three, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. Step three, then, it comes to the church. Now the church is made aware this is a sin. This is a problem in this person's life. They've been confronted by one. They've been confronted by two or three, and they refuse to repent. They refuse to turn, so we bring it to the church. And now the church comes in together as a body and says, look, you're living in open rebellion against God you're not living like a Christian repent turn from your sin and turn to Christ now if that person still refuses to listen to the church verse 17 stage number four step number four if he refused to listen to them oh excuse me if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church then step four and if he refuses to listen even to the church Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, now it's time to take disciplinary action. Treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. And so Jesus kind of gives this summary view. Treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. Treat him like a sinner. The sinner that he or she is acting like they are, right? They're they're acting like a sinner, so now you treat them like a sinner. They're, They're not living like they're a follower of Jesus Christ, so now you treat them like they're not a follower of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we pick up today in 1 Corinthians, and it's the action that we take, the punitive action that the church takes against a person who has they refuse the the, the uh, reproach. Or they refuse the the first person. They refuse the few. They refuse the, to listen to the church. Now let's take action, and here is the action that we as a church can take. And so today, I want us to see that first of all, that God clearly defines the punitive actions of church discipline. God clearly defines the punitive action of church discipline, and we see it here in First Corinthians. And today we're going to see four means of church discipline. Four means or four actions that the church can take to, uh, to uh, do church discipline. So and I hope as we see this, as we see what Paul tells us today, that we can understand. Hopefully we'll never have to conduct church discipline. But if we do, if, we, if, if it ever comes to that point, And may we be faithful to conduct church discipline according to God's word. May we be faithful to the word of God. So, again, last week we saw the motive of church discipline. It's all out of love. Love for the sinner, love for the church, love for the name of Christ. Now we see the means of church discipline today. As we read our text, I do want to remind you that we, the situation that's taking place in Corinth, 
At this point, we've moved on from the, the factionalism that's been taking place in Corinth, but now Paul is addressing open uh, sin that's taking place in the church. And in particular, this is a, a person who is living in open sexual immorality and is not remorseful at it, of it. Uh, the church, no, not only are they complacent in this matter, but they're also arrogant in it. They're kind of boasting in this man's sin, right? It's all about grace. It's not about works. It's all about grace, and they're boasting in it instead of looking at sin as it is, as an affront to God's glory. And so Paul is telling them here, it's time to take action. And so let's look at what he says here. If you will, stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindler, or the idolater, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with the judgment of outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth in all our hearts. And you may be seated. So as we talk about church discipline, it is the removal of, of privileges that uh, the church, church has to, to work with here. And the first means of church discipline that we see here in our text is this, the removal of church membership. The removal of church membership. Look there again at the first couple of verses. Is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind of which 
uh, is not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So if you weren't here last week, I explained this. Uh, this, this is a situation in which uh, a man dies, and now his son has taken his, basically his stepmother. It's not his mother, but it's his stepmother into his house to be with her, to have a relationship, a sexual relationship with her. This is something that wasn't even tolerated by the pagans, those outside of the church. But here, the church is tolerating it. They're even boasting in it. We're free in Christ, right? That's what we hear by people who want to have the liberty to sin. We're free in Christ. We don't have to go with the Old Testament law. We're free to do whatever we want because Christ died for our sin, right? No, Christ died to transform us into the image and likeness of Christ. We've got to get rid of the old sin. No, it's not our sin that sends us to hell. He died and paid for our sin. But that doesn't give us the right to continue to sin against Christ. Dear Christian, get the sin out of your life. Stop sinning. Yes, we all fail. Yes, we all sin. But when you live in open rebellion against God, you're saying, I don't care that Christ died for me. I don't care that he covered my sin. I'm going to keep on doing that which he had to die for. Get the sin out of your life and live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. Quit living in sin. Here's this sin that's just open and unrepentant. And Paul says, you've got to address the sin. For the sake of the sinner, you've got to address the sin. And how is that to remove church, dis- to remove church membership? And you are arrogant, Paul says. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, when he says be removed from among you, Paul is talking about being removed from membership of the church. Here's this guy who's coming in and he's acting like a member of the church, acting like he is a part of the body of Christ, even though he's living in open, unrepentant sin. And he's coming in and he's boasting in his sin. Yeah, it's sin, right? And I'm doing this and it's sin, but I don't care because I'm covered by Jesus. And he's living like this. And Paul says, remove fellowship from him. Remove his membership from him. Put him out. Now, that doesn't mean that that you just kick him out of the the building, right? That, That doesn't mean that you just completely disassociate with him. As Jesus said, you're to treat him like a sinner, a tax collector, or a Gentile. Treat him like a sinner that he is. And so uh, we have, when we think about church membership, there's great privileges that come with church membership. Wonderful privileges that come from church membership, right? Now, you cannot be a member of the church, and you can come, and you can worship with the church, and you can even uh, come to a life group, and, and you can do certain things, but, uh, but then there are certain things you can't do as a member of the church. If you're not a member of a church, you, you can't vote. You can't help make decisions uh, to help direct the church. You can't serve in positions of leadership. You can't be a life group teacher. You can't 
uh, be a deacon. You can't serve on committees and ministry teams. Uh, you can do little acts of service. You might can help serve a meal or something like that. But if you're not a member of the church, you cannot take positions of leadership within the church. You come and you hear the word of God preached and you take the benefit of that, but that's about as far as it goes. So it's not removing complete fellowship. It's not kicking them completely out of the church building. No, we want them to be here. We want them to hear the gospel preached, right? Because they're living like a sinner. We want sinners to be in our midst. We want sinners to be in church to hear the gospel proclaimed. We want that. And so it's not just saying, no, you can't come here anymore. No, you can't be a member anymore. You can't serve on a committee. You can't teach. You can't have any position of leadership within the church if you're living in open, unrepentant sin. And so it's a removal of the privileges of membership. It's a removal of the privileges of membership. Now, do notice this, that if the removal of the privileges of membership is to be effective, then membership has to be valuable, doesn't it? Unfortunately, for, for many churches, membership is no longer valuable. Because for so long, the, the practice has been, if you want to be a member of the church, basically you walk down the aisle, you say, I want to be a member of the church, and the church just votes, oh yeah, we'll take them, Right? No examination of the person's life, no nothing, right? You just come in, raise your hand, I want to be a member. Okay, you're a member. No expectations. You got a roll of 450 folks. You got an average attendance of 130. Membership's not very valuable. Membership doesn't really mean much. You just sign your name on the roll. That's all the membership is. If that's all that membership is, removing membership is not going to do a thing. It's not going to mean a thing. Now, we've been taking steps to change that here at First Bastrop, haven't we? Now you can't just come up and say, I want to join the church. All right, you're a member. Nope, nope, you've got to at least go through the new members class, and we're going to talk about here's what, our, here's what uh, membership means. Here's who we are as a church. Here's what we expect of our membership, and here's what you can expect from us. And so we at least have that going. And so people come in, they know that it, membership is more than just being uh, a name on a roll. It, it calls for responsibility. And so we've got to continue to, to improve the value of church membership in every way we can. Membership must be valuable if taking away membership is to be disciplinary, uh, disciplinary action. So... The first means of church membership is removing, or excuse me, the first means of church discipline is removing the privileges of church membership. Yes, you can come, you can hear the word preached, but you can no longer be a member of the church if you continue to live in open, unrepentant sin against God. Think about it like this. You know, if you discipline a child, you say, Johnny... If you don't pick up your, your toys, you're not going to get broccoli at dinner time, right? That's not going to do much for Johnny. Johnny's going, oh, well, I'm not going to pick up my toys then, right? Because broccoli's not very, very valuable to Johnny. But if you say, Johnny, if you don't pick up your toys, you're not going to get dessert. Well, then Johnny's going to pick up his toys. 
because dessert is valuable. In the same way, church membership must be valuable. It must be valuable if it is to be an action of, of discipline. So the first means of church discipline is the removal of the privileges of church membership. The second means of church discipline is the removal of God's protection. It's the removal of God's protection. Now this is serious business. This is serious business. Look what he says there in verse 3. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, notice that, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, we really focus in on that last verse there, verse 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And we say, what in the world is he talking about? But we need to take a step back there and think about the whole paragraph of what Paul is saying. What, what's this action that's being taken uh, for this for discipline of this for the discipline of this man well number one it, when he says that i am with you i am present in the spirit we can kind of understand that right we kind of understand that's not that paul can be there physically but when we are away from the church we we might say well i'm with you in spirit right when i go off on vacation i'm not here with the church I'm here with you in spirit. I, I want to be with you. I long to be with you. I, I'm with you. I'm praying for you. All those things. And so I'm with you in spirit. And that's what Paul is saying about him being there in spirit. But then he goes on to say, when you're there, when you come to that place, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you, with the power of our Lord Jesus. With the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver this man over to Satan. So he's not saying, here, here you're, you're just going to hand him off to Satan. What he's saying is that through the power of Jesus Christ, through the power of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus, you are going to do this. It's not that Satan has any authority. He has none other than that which is given by God himself, but by Jesus Christ. He's saying, here's what you do. You're going to pray for the removal of the protection of this person so that they might change, so that they might repent. You think about that. When you gather together in the power of the name of Jesus, the power of Jesus, John 16, 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Jesus tells his disciples, you haven't prayed in my name, but now pray in my name, ask in my name, because my name has power. My name brings power. Pray in my name, and you will get what you receive, that your joy may be full. Praying in the power of Jesus' name has a great has great authority, has great power to it. And Jesus says about the power of, of prayer, Matthew 18, 19, 18, 18 and 19, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, 
and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So when the saints come together and they pray, there's power in that pray, prayer. When they pray in the name of Jesus, when they appeal to the Father on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ, there's power in that prayer. And Jesus says that whatever the church prays for in the name of Jesus and the will of God, it's like it's bound up in heaven. It's for sure it's going to happen. And Jesus is bound up in heaven. And whatever you loose will be loosed on earth. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on earth. And so there's power when the church comes together and prays in the name of Jesus and in the will of God. So what Paul is saying here, when you come together, when you assemble together as a church, you pray that Jesus would release this man to the power of Satan if that's what it takes to get this person to repent and be conformed to the image of Christ. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Think about the Lord's Prayer. What does the Lord's Prayer say? There, there's that one little, little verse there, verse uh, of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 13. We are to pray and lead us. Jesus says, pray this, lead us. Who's the us? The us is the church. This is a prayer for the church, not just individuals, but for the church. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians, when you gather together in the power of Jesus, you're to turn this person over to Satan. So in other words, you're to remove the protection of God from this person. You're to remove the the protection of God. No longer are you praying, deliver us from temptation, deliver us from the evil one, but you're saying, Lord, If it takes this person falling down into the pit to repent and get back on track with you, let it be so. If it takes Satan coming in and tearing this person's life apart, let it be so. If that's what it takes to get them back on track with you. In other words, it's saying, Lord, if it it means that they have to fall down to the bottom, if they've got to hit rock bottom, to get out of this sin that they're in and to get back in their relationship with you, then, Lord, let them hit rock bottom. Now, sons, uh, parents of prodigals, I've heard parents of prodigals tell me this, that for many, many years they prayed, Lord, protect my child, protect my child, protect my child but it comes to a point where you see your child going down that road so far that you have to say Lord God if you have to whatever it takes whatever it takes to get them out of drugs whatever it takes to get them out of this alcohol addiction whatever it takes to get them out of this sexual relationship that they're in whatever it takes to save their soul God do it if you've got to kill them to save them, Lord, do it. You see, it's a prayer of desperation. It's a prayer of desperation. Lord, I see where they're going. They're going to hell. 
kill their body if that's what it takes to save their soul. Lord, they're in your hands. Do what you will. Turn them over to Satan if you have to. Save them. It's removing the protection of God from around them. It's, th- it's stopping that whole prayer of deliver us from the evil one. And it's saying, Lord, do whatever it takes. Lord Jesus, do whatever it takes to save their soul. They're living in sin. Get them out of it. Wake them up. Even if they had to hit rock bottom, wake them up for their salvation. Church discipline involves removing God's protection from that person so that even if they have to hit rock bottom, they might repent and turn to Christ and be saved. Church discipline is a removal of church membership. It's a removal of God's protection. Third, church discipline is the removal from the Lord's table. It's removal from the Lord's table. Look what he says there in verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleans out the old leaven, that, the, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened? For Christ, our Passover lamb. Notice all the language of the Passover, language of the Lord's Supper here. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, the Lord's Supper, with, uh, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so what Paul is saying is now, here's the, here, here's the point where you t- remove them from the Lord's table. You know, there's a great privilege in the communion. The communion of the saints, coming to the Lord's table and taking communion together. Let's think about what communion means. Think about what communion means. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says, this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Think about it, when we come together to take the Lord's Supper together, we are pronouncing to the world, number one, and using that as a remembrance for ourselves that we are participating in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. When we take of the bread and we take of the cup, we're saying that Christ's body was broken for me. He was broken for me. His blood was poured out for me. And by participating in the Lord's Supper, I am testifying that I am partaking in His body and His blood. I am saved in Jesus Christ. I'm saved. I'm partaking. I'm partaking of His body. That's a grace to us. It's a grace that God has given us to partake of the Lord's Supper, to to have that constantly reminding us that we are participants in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He died for us to save us and give us new life in Him. But when a person is living like a sinner, they're saying, I'm not partaking of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I'm doing something else. I'm I'm partaking of the world. I'm doing what the world does. That's what I'm participating in. 
And so it's an insult for, for people to come in and partake of the Lord's Supper, even though they're living in open, unrepentant sin against God. And so Paul says, remove table fellowship from them. A person who is living in open, unrepentant sin is not able to partake of the Lord's table. They're not, protect, they're not able to, to benefit from that, to pronounce that, to be reminded of that. They, they need it withheld so they can, say, they can understand, my action says I'm not partaking in Christ. My life says I'm not living according to Christ. I'm not in him. He is not working in me. And so we remove table fellowship to remind them that their lifestyle is not in accordance with the word of God. I mean, we have the saying, right? If it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Well, if a person looks like a sinner, walks like a sinner, and acts like a sinner, they're a sinner. They're outside the body of Christ. Christ says, I've made you a new creation. How can you be a new creation and still living in the open, unrepentant sin? The evidence of your life is Christ is not in you. Dear friend, if that's you, you need to repent of your sin, turn to Christ, and be saved. And when people are living in that, it's the church's responsibility to say, no, you can't partake. Because your lifestyle says you're not in Christ. Repent and be saved. And so it's a removal from the Lord's Supper. But it's also, understand this, that this is also an act of love, right? Again, it's all wrapped up in love. We need to be constantly reminded of that. Church discipline is never in spite or, or anything like that. It's always an act of love. And so is this, removing them from the Lord's table, it's an act of love. I want to just throw, show you this real quick. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. Paul says of the Lord's Supper here, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In other words, there were some people in Corinth who were taking the Lord's Supper even though they were living in sin. They weren't examining themselves. They were living in open, unrepentant sin against God, and they were continuing to participate in the Lord's Supper. They were continuing to say, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm in Christ. No, I'm not living like it, but I'm in Christ. And God was punishing them. He was disciplining them. Some were, some were sick. Some even died. Because they were taking the Lord's Supper in vain. And so when we remove someone from the Lord's table who is living in open, unrepentant sin, we are we're taking an action of love. We're saying, no, you don't need to partake of this because you're going to be drinking judgment on yourself if you're living in sin and partaking of the Lord's Supper. And so it is an act of love. All of church discipline should be an act of love love so church discipline 
is the removal of membership, the removal of God's protection, and the removal from the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. Fourth, church discipline is the removal of Christian fellowship. The removal of Christian fellowship. Notice what he says in verses 19 through 13, or excuse me, 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world, right? Because we'd have to go out of this world to disassociate with the sexually immoral of this world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as, a, or as an idolater a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. In other words, if they're living in open, unrepentant sin, not even to eat with such a one. Not even to eat with such a one. You're to remove Christian fellowship from that person. Again, this is not complete disassociation. It's not complete disassociation. Like Jesus said, you treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. You treat him like a sinner. That means you're not hanging out anymore. Right? You're not just coming out to hang out and, oh, let's have fun together and all that kind of stuff because they're living open, unrepentant sin. But now when you get together with them, it's as a Christian to a sinner. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me witness to you. I love you, and I want you to repent. I want you to get out of this lifestyle. I want you to turn to Christ. I want you to be saved. The relationship has changed. No longer can we hang out as brothers and sisters in Christ because their action says, I'm not a brother and sister in Christ. Now their relationship has changed. And now we hang out as a Christian with an unbeliever. And our goal is to tell them about Jesus so that they might repent and be saved. So it's not a complete disassociation, but what it's saying is, I love you, but I can't be with you. I love you, but your lifestyle is not in accordance to, with God's word. Your lifestyle is, in a, is in a disobedience to Christ. I love you, but I can't be with you. Again, when you go back to the prodigal child, a child, say, who's, on, who, who's addicted to drugs, they've fallen into that trap, and a parent tries and tries to help their child to get out of that, that addiction, but they just keep fall, falling further and further away, and they begin to steal from their parents and take advantage of their parents and all of this kind of thing, and finally the parent has to say, son, I love you. But I can't be with you. You got to get out. You got to go on your own. I'm not going to enable you anymore. You got to go. I love you. You're my child. I love you and I'll always love you. But you can't be here. I can't be with you. Sometimes that's what it takes as a parent. We got to get to that point where we say, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. But with your lifestyle, I can't be with you. And so it is with the church. When we see a brother or sister in Christ living in open, unrepentant sin against, against God, there comes a point that we have to say, I love you. 
but I can't hang out anymore. I can't watch you destroy yourself. I can't watch you continue down this road to hell and act like everything's okay and lovely. I love you, but I can't be with you. Church discipline ends up with the removal of church fellowship. So church discipline, the actions of church discipline are the removal of membership, the removal of God's protection, the removal from the Lord's table, and the removal from fellowship. Dear friends, church discipline is hard. We know that. And I can feel it in this room this morning, right? This is uncomfortable. We don't even like to talk about it because it's, it's something that we don't want to ever have to do. It's hard. We don't want to discipline our children because that's hard. We don't want to be the source of pain for them. But sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's necessary when our pain is better than the pain they're going to experience down the road. And dear Christian, dear church, it's better for us to take, go down the road of, of being uncomfortable when one of our flock is falling into sin and addressing their sin and even, even conducting church discipline in order to get them out of the pits of hell and back on a relationship with Jesus Christ. Church discipline is hard, but we must always remember the goal. The goal of church discipline is repentance and conformity to Christ. It's an act of love to see people climb out of sin and into a relationship with Jesus. Oh, just think about the actions that loving parents have to take toward prodigals. Their actions aren't always easy and they're not always pleasant, but they have to be taken in order to get that child out of the pit. And so it is with church discipline. Now, if you're here today and you're listening to all of this and you're not a Christian, you're not a church member, nor are you a Christian, you're saying, I don't know if I won't like all of this stuff, right? But here's what this says. Here's what church discipline says. Church discipline says if you're in Christ, if you're a brother and sister in Christ, you're our brother and sister. And we are going to love you. If you join us, if you become a member of our church, we are going to love you. And we're going to love you in such a way that if we see you on a path of destruction, we're not going to let you go down that road alone. But we're going to pull you out. And we're going to do whatever it takes to get you out of the pit. Even if it means letting you fall down on your face. Even if it means you, you go near the, de- the edge of destruction. If it takes that to get you out of the pit and to get you in a relationship with Christ, we're going to do that. Do that. We're committed to doing that. And dear friend, that's how we should be as a church. And people, when they come in to see that kind of relationship, they should long for that kind of relationship, for people who would love them so much to address their sin and to help them stay on a road, on the path of righteousness, the path of eternity in a relationship with Jesus. And if you don't know Christ today, I want you to know that he died on the cross for your sins 
to give you life. And if you trust in him, he will make you a new creation in him. The old will pass away and a new life will come. And he'll give you power over sin. And he'll put you in a family who will love you and help you grow in Christ and help you walk through those gates of heaven one day when this life is over. If you'll only trust Christ today. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to discipline us. And Lord, you love us enough to put us in a body of believers who will speak into our lives and even discipline us when necessary to keep us in a right relationship with you. Oh, Lord, I do pray if there's any today who do not know you in this building, Lord, that somehow you would speak to their hearts, turn their hearts, let them, let them know Jesus, let them trust in Christ today. Let them become a new creation in him. Now these things I pray in Christ's name. Amen.